Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ja, välkommen till uh, nok en podcast. Det är er, uh, sommer och sol och min uh, podcastmaker han uh, har tagit med sig en uh, dyr lyxbil och dratt över uh, fjellet. Så jag sitter här i studio nu med min uh, fantastiska producent Karoline Elgesen och uh, ska leda dere in i uh, en, en lång prat med Ed China för uh, Det er alltid Top Gear som er den første tingen folk driver og snakker om når de skal snakke om bilprogrammer. Men så viser det seg at Wheelie Dealers, det er ofte det programmet som får folk litt i gang med, med projekter og drømmer. Hvor, hvor konseptet alltid har vært å kjøpe noe, en bil billig med litt feil og fikse noe opp og eventuelt beholde den eller selge den med en profit. Det, det er i hvert et, et program som fikk mig i gang med å tørre å skru og eie bil. Da jeg skulle kjøpe min første bil, så mente min far at, ja, men en liten Skoda, de er det jo aldrig noe galt med. Og det jeg har aldrig varit et praktisk menneske, så det blev en gammel BMW 5-serie stedet for, som jeg haltet frem og tillbaka til biltema for å kjøpe stadig mer verktøy for att holde liv i. Så, og det har alltid varit grejt att kunne lene sig på et bilprogram som Wheeler Dealers. Det begynte jo enkelt med biler til a grand, altså 1000 pund. Og derfra så har det jo rullet av gårde nedover og blitt dyrere og mer komplekse projekter. Men det er alltid morsomt att se også de gamle programmene, og det er jo relativt tidløse ting. Selv om det er relativt vanskelig att få tak i en del av de bilene fra de første sesongene til de fantastisk lave priserna som som de ruller in i garagen med. Det är er för övrigt ett intervju som vi har gjort per telefon. Telefonintervjuer har ju någon små problemer i att de man manglar mimik och den naturliga atmosfären som blir när man delar delar bord och ansiktsuttryck. det Bærer nok dette intervjuet kanskje bitte litt prega. Vi har som mål at på sikt så skal vi få Ed China inn i studio her, for det var det som det var den opprinnelige planen. Men det fordrer både at koronasituasjonen er under kontroll og at mannen er i Norge igjen. Noe han jo er med tid og stunder. Vi skal også i gang med gjester i studio etter sommeren, og det gleder vi oss veldig til. Men da er vi også avhengige av å få noen 
solide tips på hvem dere ønsker at vi skal komme i prat med. Det er en idé och foreslå namn som har en genuin bilinteresse eller gode bilhistorier. Det at, det at en kjendis har en tøff bil gitt dem av et, av en, et importørledd, det kvalifiserer ofte ikke til de dypeste og gode samtalene, og alle vet jo at mil etter mil en podcast om bil, det handler kun om de dype og gode samtalene. Men, har du et tips til navn, mil etter mil at finansavisen.no, eller vår Facebook-gruppe Finansavisen Motor? Med det så ønsker jeg velkommen til denne praten med Ed Scheiner. So, um, I've read your book. Um, I reckon you've you've read your book. But what are you up to these days? Uh, why did you write a book, and and what are you doing? Yeah, well, it was kind of it's an interesting time. Um, you know, I've had a bit of time on my hands, and then weirdly, just so I got to do loads of stuff that we just ha- couldn't do when we were filming all the time. You know, because the filming was pretty full on. You know, it was sort of you know all the time really. Actually, even weekends, you were sort of traveling to a location often. So, so, so you know, once we got back here, I was going off and doing sort of sitting British records and amphibious vehicles and all kinds of other mad stuff. Um, looking after my mum for a bit and the other bits and pieces. But then, and then uh, Virgin or what you became and said, "Oh, do you want to write a book?" And I was like, "Well, I don't know." But I've done one of those before, and so we sort of started out on the process. And um, I, I wasn't sure whether it was going to be a painful thing or not, but actually, it was amazingly sort of cathartic, I guess. And then you kind of have all those little moments where you worry about. You know whether those stories are interesting or not, and then you kind of realise some of those anecdotes you've been talking about for years are actually really rubbish, and so never see the light of day again. So it's actually a really, really interesting process. And then, of course, also part of that was trying to find photos, and uh, and then sort of just almost like travelling back in your mind to to these earlier times. Um, and so yeah, it was, I mean, it's a really, really great sort of project if you like, and, and sort of working with Imogen the last to actually. You know, to, to go through it all. I mean, so so I have read it a number of times. In fact, we even read it out loud, out loud for the uh, you know for, for the downloads you can get. So it was quite a quite an immersive experience, but it was really wonderful. I, I'd love to do another one actually because I think now now we've kind of got into the groove of it. Um, you know, initially it was very difficult to know where to start. Um, we had a bit of help, you know, from the, from the publishers as to how that would work and then to work out a structure. And then once you kind of in the end, it was just literally just the title of a a chapter was enough to set me off and so some of the some of the madness at the very end of the book <laughs> you know it was, it was a very edited uh, you know sort of uh, conscious or a stream of consciousness because i've read the book and um we're going to give away one of um we got two copies from from your wife uh, and we're going to give one of them away to our listeners and but i've read the book and it's um it's a fascinating tale about how you ended up where you did because for yeah. uh at least for a lot of our norwegian listeners you're primarily known for wheelie dealers and being sent on the norwegian discovery network for years but uh yeah. you've had quite an interesting career before that and how you ended up doing all the stuff you did but where did the curiosity for um for like building and repairing and and making stuff come from Oh, well, I think I guess probably in a weird way, my dad, I and mean, he was an actual rocket scientist. He worked on the world uh, or the UK's first solar-powered satellite, among other things. And he, I, I never quite uh, reached his <laughs> accolades, if you like. But um, 
it was, you know, obviously I have, uh, there's other people in the family, I think, who have sort of been inventive in the past. And my, my, my grandfather was a, was a head entomologist for the British Museum, I think. And so, so there's, there's, all, you know, there's all this kind of logical, creative kind of spaces, you know, sort of in, in the genes, if you like. And I think I, I just find it really, I, I just love how stuff works. I like understanding how things work or figuring out how stuff should work, perhaps. Um, and so as a kid, I used to take things apart and then eventually I sort of put it back together again um, to, uh, you know, sort of <laughs> really, really just as an, an interest in, I guess, it, well, the relationship between all kinds of bits and pieces. So, so, so it's, it's really that. It's like how things go together. And that's not just mechanical things. It's kind of like how the world works, how, the, you know, how does one thing influence another. And I think... Uh, certainly in school, I found it's very. We do, we do a lot of subjects uh, at school in, in the UK, and then and you sort of have to pick a few when you go through the, as you get older. And I sort of discovered, you know, we did design and technology and woodwork and metalwork and all that kind of stuff. But I just really love the immediacy of actually making something with your with your hands. So I also used to do a lot of programming back in the day. So I stopped just before I might have made any money out of that. But, um, you know, it's the same sort of thing, you know, whether you're pushing around in a computer or whether you're sort of firing off an edge of a, a bit of metal, um, there, there's, there's something in the creation of stuff. And I think that's really what I love the most is, is, is you know, I'm in sort of constantly curious. So I think everybody should always stay curious because obviously you, you learn something one way or the other. But I think it's that, it's putting all that together. And then once you've understood something, it's how can you apply that to something else. And I guess that's how we end up with driving furniture and stuff. So are you still building and inventing stuff, or is that a thing of the past? No, absolutely. It's, it's almost more so now than ever. I mean, I think, you know, whether it's little things around the house, but actually for the last couple of years, one of the things I've been working on, you know, it seems constantly, but it's, you know, sort of bits and pieces. We did a world record, or that was a world record attempt, actually, for the world's fastest electric ice cream van. Uh, so long story, but we've, we've done stuff with Guinness World Records uh, over the years. It started with the sofa, actually. We did, we did 87 miles an hour on a, on a racetrack, a Bonson racetrack um, in the UK for a, a Sun newspaper piece millions of years ago. Things and uh, the um, and then Guinness came out and said, "Well, that's a record. You know, you're interested." And it was like, absolutely because obviously as a kid growing up, Guinness World Records, you know. A really, really interesting thing was the TV show Norris McGuire or the Twins and that stuff in the day, and so, so it was, it was, it was, a, it was almost like a dream come true in some respects. And so then, and once you've got one, you then have to do more. Um, and then, so sort of being forward to, to you know, a couple of years ago, they were saying, "Well, what should we do next?" Um, and so we had this idea of, of doing an ice cream van and making it electric because I think that's definitely the future. And then I realised, um, uh, so almost more than me initially, was the fact that. This is a real problem, you know. For years in the UK, um, well, back since the 60s, people have had to put up with diesel fumes, you know, when they're ordering their ice creams. And you think, well, when it's outside a playground, you know, or outside a kid's school or whatever, that's not a good thing. Um, and we shouldn't have to put up with that. And so then, as part of once I've electrified the van, it was a brand new Mercedes. Once I've electrified that, so then I suddenly realised I had to actually electrify the ice cream or the soft ice machine itself. Um, and that proves to be quite tricky because you know, you've lost a lot of energy to turn the liquid into ice cream almost instantaneously. So, you know, it sort of took a couple of goes, um, and then sort of got it working well enough for the record attempt. Um, and then I've sort of been honing it since. I've now got a kit, you know, possibly a, you know, like a retrofitable kit that you can go into any, any ice cream van, um, so that you can actually then run it on electricity on batteries only. And not have to have the diesel thing running, so it can still drive there under whatever, you know, even if it's steam powered, it's not a problem. 
But then obviously once it gets there, you could serve all day, you could serve a day's worth of ice cream uh, using electricity. And it's sort of, in, in this country, uh, local councils started banning ice cream vans last year, um, you know, because of the diesel fumes, and now we can fix it. So that's probably the most finished product I've ever invented, <laughs> if you like. Um, and it's now available effectively to sell. So you know, we're working with various customers to, to get that in ready. Normally they're seasoned for the finishes at the end of the year. Of course, this year has been a bit strange for, for everybody, I guess, but particularly ice cream sellers as well, because there's nobody to sell ice cream to. So we're hoping that it's really going to kick off next year. But I think really what I find with inventing is when, um, you know, whatever, we're all, we're all invented in some way or other. And, and what I find is when I'm trying to solve a problem, I end up having to solve, you know, I end up solving loads of other ones because I'm sort of not thinking about them so specifically. And, and, and so I find that the more I get creative, the more creative I get, if that makes sense. So it's sort of, and then recently I've just done, uh, but you can read a bit, bit more about the ice cream van on, on my new uh, website, which I just sort of put up the other day, you know, at eggchina.com. Um, and it was the same thing. I was like, I, something I'd been putting off for ages. I could have got someone else to do it. I thought, I'm just going to sit down and actually have a go. Um, and it's obviously dead easy, but it's that kind of, it's, it's, you know, sometimes you just have to get over that little mental block. And I think that, that stands for everything, whether it's in the workshop, in the garden, wherever you are, you know, some things are sometimes intimidating for no reason at all. And it's just a case of just pushing through and then you'll be really, hopefully, in, enjoy the result. So, uh, you're talking about electrification of uh, an ice cream van. So, as you're, you're quite familiar with Norway, I, <laughs> I guess. So, yeah. <laughs> so um, electric cars are selling in huge numbers in Norway, and um, I think we have the the largest uh, percentage of electric cars per capita in the world right now. It's us, so California. That's amazing. Um, yeah. What What do you think about battery electric cars? I, I think it's absolutely the future. I think the um, it's, it's really interesting. Actually, when I first started coming to Norway, it was back in the day where you still had a few old American vehicles floating around um you know and, and sort of the cars were sort of often older it seems um you know and, and then sort of over the years obviously that your car park if you want to call it that has got sort of better and better and better and to see so many electric cars i know you had to think in the, in the buddy um and they were um and it's a shame that sort of neither of them have really sort of found their feet but of course they've been overtaken by the tesla and then that is an insane bit of engineering in fact the other day we had to go on um um, it was uh, when they're super sporty mode, and it was just you know it's like you can feel your brain or or the liquid in your head go to the back of your head. It's quite it's quite an amazing sort of experience, um, and it's a really nice party trick. But of course, obviously, that's not what really it's all about. But I mean, the interesting stuff, and we've got um, sort of charging points at the house, and so we can um, like twenty two kilowatts, or whatever. So we can actually um, you know have electric cars and stuff here just because we needed one for the ice cream van, and um, What's amazing about it when you think about it, especially for classic cars as well. I mean, I'm working on a couple of projects where we're going to convert classics to run on electric um, because there are lots and lots of classics that are you know, fantastically stylish, really lovely um, to look at and whatever. But they, you know, it was never really about the engine. And obviously, there's plenty that are, but there's, there's, there's also things like so the Citroen DS, for example. I mean, it's a beautiful car. Um, and it, it was never about the engine. Um, and so to make that electric would just make it even better. And if you can give it a sensible, you know, you normally won't travel for massive distance. But nowadays, as as for every year, as battery technology gets better and gets cheaper, you can obviously afford to go further um, in, in whichever car conversion or you know sort of vehicle you're in. So 
I think the idea that, you know, you can have your car in winter in the garage, you know, sort of all winter and then literally come out one day, nice sunny day. And of course, obviously, you, if you've got solar panels on your roof or whatever it is, you could literally have charged your classic, um, you know, over the winter and it's ready to go. And every time you come back and we have an electric boat, same thing. So, you know, you, you don't have a day's fun, come back, plug it in. The next time you want to use it, it's ready to go. No, no hassle with fuel or anything. So just purely from the enjoyment and practicality, it's, it's the way forward. But also, you know, we do need to worry about the planet. And that's, you know, it seems to me a really obvious thing. You know, the planet is solar powered, so why not have all of our stuff solar powered too, and including buildings? But that's a whole other story, I guess. But certainly, I'm very much up for the idea of battery electric vehicles, and it's definitely a part of the future. But also, hydrogen is um, going to be part of that mix, because I mean, we have a, a, one of my cars is a Range Rover, um, and um, the you know, it's not very environmentally friendly at all, frankly. You know, so the diesel fumes, you know, are not great. Um, and I'm going to do some little tweaks on that to try and make it a bit better while I still have to put up with that. But if I'm going to tow something around the country, um, at the moment, there isn't an electric car out there, really, unless I make one myself, that is going to be up to the job with the right range pulling that kind of weight. So we've got, a little, you know, it, it, they're early days. Um, but I think, they, you know, I think it's easily solved with the hydrogen, which, again, can be made from solar power or whatever, or renewable energy anyway. So it's, I think it's really exciting times. And right now there's all kinds of people having a go at solving you know, all the same problems in lots of different ways. So it's exciting to see you know, what, what work, what's going to work, what's not going to work, and you know, sort of where we're going to end up. You're touching on something that's dear to my heart, and that's old Range Rovers. Um, firstly, <laughs> what, what kind of Range Rovers uh, are you talking about? So I've got the, uh, so it's a later one, it's a 2006, uh, well I've, got, I've actually got two, I've got a matching pair, one's, one's completely broken and one's mostly working. Yeah, <laughs> so so that, that's, that's the way I see it, that's how you have to do that. That's the L332 uh, model, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, it's, um, and it's, it's um, yeah, it, it's kind of, uh, I mean it's, it's a 2D6, so it's, it's, it's a great, it's a great time vehicle. It's, it's the first Ranger ever I felt that actually went as well as it sounded because they always sounded pretty good but they never sort of went anywhere um but this one really does and it's got a sporty exhaust on it so i haven't done anything to the engine particularly but it's just somehow you know that much better apart i mean the 4.4 is even better still but you know it's, it's also slightly less economical perhaps but yeah good fun yeah because um on a personal note i've had four of those and i've ha- i have a sec- <laughs> i have a secret dream of electrifying an l322 do you think that's viable to do at all well, I'll, I'll let you know because actually that's one of my next coming plans. Because basically, I had this, I had this uh, Range for We bought it years ago, and in fact, the first thing we did actually, we bought it from a dealer, um, uh, sort of, and uh, we go, there's a few things wrong with it. We got it sorted, and then drove straight to Norway. So we drove all the way, um, and then we drove from um, Oslo to Bergen over the top. Um, you know, sort of through the, through the mountains with garage doors in and all that kind of stuff, and it was all very exciting. Uh, and they're kind of unstoppable with the right tires. Um, and um, the it, it, it's a fantastic thing, but so I, I didn't quite make it to 250,000 miles. I only did 240,000, and and both head gaskets blew. <laughs> so it's um, and, and literally I just literally picked it up yesterday from uh, some friends of ours who were just going to do some work on it just because I hadn't got the time, and they literally gave up ultimately. They just said like, you know what, take it back. We got it. So I thought, well, maybe we should make it electric to see what happens. And it's actually all in bits. I've got the engine and box and the subframe all out, and then the rest of it sort of you know, is looking quite forlorn at the moment. But it's really easy to see how it could work quite nicely because if you stick a motor onto the transfer box you can get rid of the gearbox get rid of the engine and then you can use that space for batteries and so you can keep the weight of the vehicle about right in all the, in all the weight distribution um, and so I think um, well so watch this space I'm hoping for, for maybe 
um, do a little bit of YouTube stuff about that and just, you know, do some sort of just, I don't know, like a diary, I guess, of sorts, um, just to, just to follow <laughs> how, you know, the trials and tribulations. I and mean, obviously one of the things we had a problem with, with the ice cream van was that all the CAN bus and stuff. So obviously, because it's a modern car, it's got all this electronics on it. It's got the brain talking to all the other devices on the, on, on the vehicle. Um, and if you take those bits away, it starts to have a bit of a panic. And so one of the things we're going to have to get on top of very early on is making sure that we've got, you know, sort of CAN communication working so that even if we've taken a part out, you know, the car still thinks everything's okay. <laughs> so it's, um, it's going to be an interesting time. I'm definitely going to subscribe to that YouTube channel, but... Um, are you planning to do more YouTube stuff? Because you started up a project a couple of years ago where you did the uh, the rebuild of the Gulf, but then it's been it's yeah. not been that many projects on on online. What are your plans for the future? No, so, no, so, yeah, well, we did. I mean, we sort of we started on YouTube a long time ago, I mean, but literally, I was I was um, we had to send a video to someone in Australia, and, and, and it was going to take too long to send a DVD. And, and there's this brand new technology called YouTube. And, oh, let's give that a go. So we kind of set up the account and put up a video, and didn't get the job. <laughs> but then, you know, sort of carried on. And then, like seven years later, whatever it was, we started noticing that there were lots of people you know, sort of subscribing, and, and hadn't, there was nothing for them to look at. So we kind of put up a few more videos, and then, of course, I did the announcement and stuff. From there, and then and then we sort of tried it. We've been trying out a few different bits and pieces, and we've done a couple of adverts, the corporate stuff, um, and whatever, and did lots of Ask Ed videos and things, and sort of just trying to get a feel for what people actually want. But I think the, the overriding um, <laughs> result is everybody wants me to keep fixing stuff and explain how stuff works. So that's what we're going to try and do. And so we're just putting the last bits and pieces together to try and. Do more regularly. I mean, I've been pretty rubbish, frankly. So apologies to all the listeners. I, you know, we've been pretty bad at putting stuff up regularly. Um, but what the idea is, we're going to be a bit more regular with things. We're going to sort of do a number of different sort of projects, um, just just like you would, you know, in the garage. And you sort of tinker with this and fix that and whatever, and have some overriding stuff. So there's there's going to be some familiar projects that we you know we sort of started before, and some other stuff, and um, that's, that's completely new. And then some really random things that might not even be to do with inside the workshop, but you know, it could be just you know doing something for the missus or whatever because we all have to do that too so uh, it should be quite a lot of fun and the, the nice thing about YouTube is that you it's the immediacy of the audience the fact that everybody can comment on how good or rubbish <laughs> your um, you know your offering is and then you can ask questions and you get answers back and whatever and also we can if we're playing with a new widget or a new tool or something then um, you know we can talk about it you know in the description so people can find it more easily so it, it, it's actually it answers a lot of the, the, the questions that were brought up with the show before you know where people because there was such a distance between when we actually did the work and when it was sort of published, if you like, on, on the network. Um, that was one thing. But also, you know, we often weren't allowed to talk about some of the products or the stuff that we were using in there um, for various reasons, whereas YouTube, we can do all of that. So that should be quite exciting, and I'm hoping that you know, the audience would appreciate that. Well, you have 31 videos and almost half a million subscribers, so I think there's a hole to be filled with Ed China stuff. Uh, <laughs> I think you're right. I have an obligation. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like that. We 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 actually posted on our Facebook group what people wanted to uh, wanted me to ask you, and a lot of it was when are you going to post uh, stuff online again? Because they really miss the stuff you're yeah. doing. So. Uh, and well, sometime soon. I mean, literally, I'm hoping within uh, sort of it's going to be within a couple of months if we get our stuff together. I mean, we've had a lot of things to deal with. I'm sure as everybody has with mm. this craziness with the virus and things. But I think we're we're sort of getting back on track, and so we're sort of heading towards that, which is great. So you know, and I think, and again, we're open to ideas. I mean, the Dallas revival show that we did or the pilot we did 
um, was on YouTube. I mean, we still want to pursue that at some point, but it's, um, you know, because that was quite good fun, but it's obviously it's complicated and it's it's, it's a bigger thing, so that uh, might be big TV, but YouTube is a really exciting place to play with, I think, so we'll see how we go. Um, going on your uh, YouTube channel, and your, you have a website called uh, greasejunkie.com, which is also the title of your book. Um, I saw yes. you're selling, among other things, uh, long uh, orange gloves, and that uh, yes. reminds me of you. You were always repairing and and making stuff wearing gloves. Whereas if you if you're on YouTube and you see people telling uh, t- or like telling uh, people how to repair and do stuff, they're always uh, doing stuff without gloves. Why are you such? Um, why are you always doing stuff with gloves on? Yeah, well, it started a long time ago, actually. We were just, um, I'd, I'd you know, been to the doctors and we'd had a blood test or whatever it was. And, and he kind of said, oh, actually, you know what? Um, there, there's there's an awful lot of hydrocarbons in your blood or whatever. And it's like, well, that didn't sound good. And he kind of went through and showed us all the various different bits of pieces and just thought that really is not healthy. Um, and, and so, you know, because when you're young, I guess, you know, you're invincible and you don't really care about it. But obviously, I guess we would got to the stage where at least we could be vaguely sensible. So I just thought, well, you know what, out of principle. And also... Again, as part of the thing about doing TV stuff is you you worry sometimes that you know, that, that, you know they always say don't try this at home. You know, like well, actually you should at least wear gloves and stuff, or you know look after yourself. And you, you meet an awful lot of mechanics and people who play with cars, and they've got their hands are in terrible state, and, and you know, and it can get out of control quite easily. So we I looked around for some gloves, and, and I sort of started wearing them. Well, I forgot what series it was, and then I realised that actually the, the ones I had were a bit too sort of short. So I started looking for the bigger ones and obviously found these orange ones. Well, that's, that's the one for us then. So, so it all kind of came together at the same time. And that's why I've been running ever since. Because, you know, when you're playing with a car, you do mess around with a lot of nasty chemicals. Um, and it, when it's constant, you know, obviously that was, you know, I was doing that all day long, um, you know, every day. Um, you know, you, you can see that it doesn't do your heart, your skin any good at all. And so it just makes sense to kind of put a, a protection, a bit of barrier between you and that. And also, you know, it's and the number of times that I've got away with stuff, you know, like, you know, sort of like a, a slipped angle grinder or whatever. And even though the gloves aren't designed to protect you from that, you know, that little extra layer <laughs> sometimes makes all the difference. So it's something that, you know, I, I try to do all the time if I can. And then, and then of course, obviously, because people asked about it. So then we, we were selling them. So that makes sense. And still do to this day. So it's sort of that we've changed the world. Actually, there's, there's an awful lot more orange gloves available now thanks to the show. <laughs> that uh, actually uh, drives me back to the the point about um, electrification of of cars, because uh, chemicals, batteries, uh, working on stuff yourself. How do you keep safe and working with battery stuff? Is that because? Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, because right you have now, to be super safe. I mean, actually, oh, sorry, go on. No, no. I'm just thinking because uh, right now it's 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 not that difficult to to like work on an old uh, old car with a four or six cylinder engine and stuff like that. But uh, in the future, um, well, we are hoping that people will continue repairing cars and building cars and building stuff. But it's it's gonna be a different world when you have to do all the as you were saying uh, the canvas stuff and the all of the electronics and the batteries and everything. How do you keep safe and how do you do stuff like that? How do you transition from the old mechanical world to the new battery world and still be enthusiastic about it? Yeah, no, it's interesting. I think I think I mean, it, it is definitely a challenge. I mean, I've certainly had a pretty, pretty vertical learning curve over the last couple of years because um, I seem to keep trying new stuff. So like, once you've just worked out how to program a... Um, you know, like, like the motor controller or the inverter, you know, for the motor, then you have to go and do the same thing for the battery monitoring system 
for the battery pack and all this kind of stuff. And obviously, anything over about 60 volts can kill you. Um, so, you, and most electric stuff, so like a lot of the stuff on the OEM things are sort of like 400, 800 volts, that kind of thing. So, you've got to be, you know, so it'll absolutely kill you. And you, in fact, there's a little, there's a slightly scary thing going on in the States where they mostly play around with the sort of a, around 150 volts ish or thereabouts. And there's this perception that it's actually okay and it's kind of safe. And it's like, but it really isn't. So you just have to, um, I guess, be very careful. I mean, you really shouldn't be working on stuff like that on your own, for one thing. And you should always have someone else there just in case there's an issue. Um, and then and there's lots of extra sort of PPE stuff that you're supposed to have. I mean, like just having special spanners and stuff that are all insulated and having, um, you know, you have to, like the shepherd's crook sort of thing so that somebody else can pull you away from electricity if there's a... If you, if you get it wrong, um, but, and there's lots of other guidelines. But it's the same thing, you know. You wouldn't stick your hand into a spinning supercharger on a big V8, or whatever, you know what I mean. So, you know, and, and you wouldn't necessarily try and put a cigarette out in a load of petrol. So, it's that kind of, you know. There's a little bit of common sense, or even a lot of common sense that needs to be used. But I think, as far as the transition's concerned, it's just really like learning another skill. So, just like when you start learning panel beating, or you start learning how to paint a car. I mean, obviously, again. When I was a kid, it was always a perception that, um, or growing up at least, that, that, that cellulose paint was actually reasonably safe and, and then the two-pack was really t- toxic and dangerous. But of course, because you think the cellulose is okay, then people didn't really wear masks properly and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, and that can bring on an awful lot of, you know, sort of damage to yourself and in- injury and whatever. So I think it's the same with all of that stuff. I think you need to be aware of what the risks are and then just be careful or sensible about that. But it doesn't need to get in the way. Of, of the enjoyment and stuff but I think there are just some moments especially with the electric stuff where you just need to if you're going to fiddle around with bits you just need to make it safe first and then you're okay and then like you know the cool thing is in some respects that a lot of it's now once you've got it all together a lot of it's software based but equally that sometimes removes some of the fun for some people so it's, it's, it's an interesting world but I think the nice thing even if you do electrify a classic car you still got all of the other bits of the classic car that are going to go wrong like they used to. So you're still going to have lots of fiddly, greasy, oily stuff to get really, you know, sort of elbow deep in. So I think it's just part of the mix going forward. And I think the the acceleration, the, the speed, you know, the um, and also actually it's a very visceral feeling. I mean, it's difficult if you were to convert a V8. You know, I think that you know, the sound of that. So I had a Lamborghini years ago from the show, and that I had a fat plane V8, which sounds particularly lovely. Um, especially in the Dolomite Mountains or whatever, you know, so it's a very special thing. So I think there are some cars where it's just not going to work. And even if you could replace that the sort of the silence with a speaker with a synthesized sound and games, you know, games engines and stuff do that all day long. So it's not like it's impossible technology wise, but there's something missing. It's the, it's, it's the deep throb, but then maybe you just don't, leak, don't mess with those cars. Maybe run them on hydrogen instead or, you know, some other solution. But I think there's still plenty of stuff to learn, plenty of fun to be had, I think. One of the things that um, electric car people always talk about is that some cars are built to be electric cars and some cars are just electrifi- electrified. And how are how are cars that have been electric that are normal petrol cars and that have been electrified? How do they drive? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think. Um if you talk about OEM stuff, like sort of new manufacturing stuff, I mean, I think you can tell the difference sometimes. I think, you know, the the weight of the batteries and, and you know, the, the cool thing about something like a Tesla, um, you know, and then like the you know, sort of the i3 and all those sort of things, those sort of cars, 
obviously effectively end up with a skateboard. So all the weight of the batteries is in the floor and it couldn't get much lower. Um, and, and it means that the center of gravity of those cars is generally lower than it would be in a standard sort of car or even a converted, you know, if, if it's just a, a petrol Golf that's just got in had some electrification put in, then I think that's going to be different. So I know Volkswagen are making their new platform, you know, where they are. I think everybody's going to go to that kind of skateboard sort of idea because it makes practical sense. It makes the cabin space better. It makes it easier to control the crash zones and all that sort of thing. You know, so, so, so again, even just practically, electric makes so much more sense. If you look under, I mean, like just seeing my Range Rover now in bits, you know, there are boxes and boxes of parts, thousands of parts to go to make the engine and loads of little bits just to try and mitigate the bad, you know, this bit or that, or get rid of that problem. With electric, you know, it is very simple. I mean, okay, it's electronics, but essentially you've got, you know, a, sort of a, a motor which is, a, you know, like a, a, whole, you know, like a solid outer bit and a spinny inner bit, you know, and then there's sort of a couple of things to control that, and the circuit boards or whatever it was, and then really everything else is just like a conventional car. So there's just less parts to go wrong. Um, and, and because of that, you can, you, it's also more easy to play with the package. So I think can, uh, sort of old models of cars that have been converted by the manufacturers, I think that you'll probably find they, they maybe roll a little bit more or they, they sort of handle slightly more wallowy perhaps, so even if they have compensated with suspension, the stuff dedicated to the job, I think are much better than most normal, you know, sort of internal combustion engine vehicles. And then when it comes to classics, um, obviously, it's, it's quite tough. I mean, like with the Range Rover, I actually think it's going to be quite, it's relatively easy with the package to deal with because it's such a big, heavy vehicle. I've got plenty of space and plenty of, you know, weight to compensate you know, or, to, or to absorb the, you know, the, the, where the battery space is going to be. But whereas like a Fiat 500 or a Mini, um, that's a lot harder because, of course, there isn't really any space for anybody to go anywhere. So I'm still, I'm playing around with the Mini project um, very slowly. And, that's one of the issues. I think, you know, some of the, we'd like to put the batteries in the boot, but actually, again, for safety reasons, that's probably not so clever. So I'm still working on that, working on that one. And, and, and I think you have to watch this space for that as well. But I think generally classics can be made to, to, to work or perform at least as well. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hopefully better than when they came out of the factory, even if they're now electric. You electrified the Maserati on the Wheelie Dilly show uh, some years ago. How was that car driving? No, it's great actually, and I think the 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 only shame of it is we couldn't get them trying to upgrade the rear shocks, um, and we couldn't get them to the show in time, so it's, it's, they took a bit longer to make than we hoped. Um, and so you can see on one of the when we do the test drive that it squats a little bit too readily. Um, but other than that, it was brilliant. I mean, it, you know, it, it was faster than the original car. You know, the acceleration was better. Um, 
and um, it was so much quieter. You know, there's something really interesting about um, that because you think that if you haven't got the engine noise, then there's not much to listen to, but you can actually hear the tyres and you can hear sort of, in a way, almost subconsciously, more of the dynamics of the car. So I think it's actually, I'd be really intrigued to know the difference for like a Formula E driver versus a Formula One driver and how they respond. Because obviously when you're driving a car, it's not just looking through the windscreen and knowing where the road is going and steering accordingly. It's, you know, you feel that in there, you feel that in your butt, you feel it, you know, sort of in your, you know, your body is moving around, you feel the vibrations, you can change, you can hear or feel the difference in the road surface. And somehow that's, that's sort of amplified in an electric car. Um, and also, as I say, sometimes it's just really love it with our boat. It's just wonderful not having an engine, um, you know, sort of making all this noise. You can actually hear nature. You can hear the water lapping. And ultimately, that's kind of why you're there. So it's, um, I, I think all of those are really good plus points. And as I say, you could always put a speaker over the top if you really wanted to. <laughs> Clearly, you have a fascination and a passion for electric cars. What uh, kind of models have you driven that you actually uh, that you especially liked? What are the best uh, electric cars you've driven? Well, I haven't driven enough. I have to say, I think the, I mean, I sort of had a go in a couple of the different Teslas, and and they're, you know, great. I mean, I love what Elon's doing. Um, anyway, it's just the, just the, the sheer belligerence of, of just uh, changing the world market <laughs> in, in, you know, sort of in vehicles for one thing, and then of course then these little space projects as well and stuff. So you know, that's it, it, he's a proper go-getter, and I think, and I like the way he's just said this can be done, and then gone ahead and done it. I think it's a real shame. I'd love to have had a go in, in Dyson's, um, I suppose now defunct uh, car, because I mean it looked like it was really going in the right direction. Um, and then I've sort of had a go in like a little i3 and stuff, and they're, and they're, again, they're great fun. It's sort of the Nissan Leaf is, you know, it's it's actually, again, surprisingly sort of, it's got some quite pleasant performance considering the kind of market sector that it's in. Um, so I think I think there, there's rarely um, sort of, a, it's just a bad electric car in a way. I mean, I think the, you know, and then things like you've got the Twizy and stuff, and that's great fun. It's just mad, actually. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, there, there's, there's a whole range, and I think uh, I want to I try more and more of them. I haven't had a go in the United States or whatever yet, and um, some of the more conventional stuff. So it'd be good to have a go and just compare them all. I've just been doing some sort of van reviews, and there's a couple of electric vans in that lot. And, you know, again, that's where it gets difficult because, of course, they have to do many, many miles you know, with loads and stuff. And so they're, they're, they're only just coming. And obviously our electric experience that we've done for the ice cream van, um, it's kind of it's, it's downfall at the moment is the range. You know, it's, it's, it's acceleration and sort of top speeds all there. It's just the fact that we can't go far enough. So so that's like, for a while going to be an issue, and that, that's where the hydrogen comes in. But I think um, you know that. But even the Tesla Roadster was fantastic fun. Again, that was uh, the first time I went to go got to go really really crazy fast, but in a you know again with this silent car and it had a it's got a kind of a turbine on that particular model so it's it, it on the motor it was like air cooled and so that added it made it feel a bit jetsons which was quite nice you know so a bit, bit futuristic but from the 50s <laughs> so i think um i think the trick is with all of these things if you're making a decision about buying one of these cars is to obviously go and do a test drive but actually get out there and spend some time or even hire one we, we hired a, a tesla from um oslo airport and unfortunately, somebody hadn't bothered to plug it in before. So we we got to the house, you know, with, with almost no energy left. And then and we were first one we were filming the revival, actually. And, and, and over a couple of days, we didn't have much time between sort of uh, filming jobs. So we ended up, I think, two miles range, I think it was. Um, and so that was a little bit difficult. To, you know, you, you are worried about the range thing then. But on the whole, obviously, the fact that you can do 200 miles, I mean, most people don't ever do that in a day of driving. So, um, you know, I think the trick is, 
to, to have a go and enjoy it, find the one you enjoy, find the one that, that make, makes you excited, and I think they're named for that. Uh, in the book, you, uh, you're writing a lot of uh, starting to, to work on Volkswagens um, and immediately uh, electrifying a, a Volkswagen T3 springs to mind as a good idea. But why did you, why, why the uh, fascination for Volkswagens? To be honest, I mean, it kind of happened by accident. I was, my first car, I was talking about it a little bit in the book, actually. My first car was, I was looking for something interesting. And I hadn't really, you know, although I was aware of Volkswagens and stuff, and, and my next door neighbor had a beach buggy when I was a kid. And they, so I guess they were around in my head. My, my, my uncle had a camper van um, for a while as well. So kind of I was aware of them, but I never really thought about what I actually wanted for a car. And there was this Jeep that looked really exciting. I wanted to go down to the beach, so it was fantastic. So we tried to buy that and couldn't. And then the next, best thing that seemed to be in the paper at the time was this bright yellow beetle um and really it was more unfortunately you know it broke down quite early on and so i then had to learn how to fix them and then and then i took that to an extreme and then you realize the brilliant thing about volkswagens or beetles particularly is that they haven't changed much in their main components um even from the 60s up right through sort of the 80s so you end up um, with all the bits being interchangeable pretty much. So you could put in like a, a, a late engine and an early car or the other way around, or you could do different gearboxes or whatever. And, and there were, um, so there was, I think really in the early days on the Mark 1 Golf, there was still a brake pipe that came from the Beetle. Uh, so, you know, it, it, there's lots of um, interchangeability. And for me, that was brilliant because I could really start messing around and you could go to the scrapyard. You know you could get your parts so they were easy to get hold of. It's easy to work on and, and everything was relatively cheap. So I guess that's... Um, it sort of got me first. But then also, I think just by its very nature, people, they're very easy to personalise. So so I think that's something that's more lacking these days. Um, I'm sure you could put a vinyl wrap on a car, but, you know, it's like with, with a bug, you know, there's Baja bugs, you know, with sort of with the, you know, sort of lift kit in it and with the engine showing out the back and all these kind of cut down wings so they could go up into the desert. Beach buggies, you know, like the cow look. You know, there was just, you know, there's sort of retro stuff nowadays. I mean, there's just a whole gamut of, um, of different ways of expressing yourself and so I think I found that particularly interesting and, and, and sort of took to an end in many different directions <laughs> Yeah, because you're a fan of individualizing uh, your car or like making it something that reflects who you are if I guess, if I understand yeah, correctly Yeah, well, I think so and I think I yeah, I think, I mean, certainly we look at the comfy banana stuff, all the vehicles we used to make um, and we obviously like the sofa we did just because I could, I just wanted to see if I could build a car that was nothing like a car, but still be street eagle, still comply with all the rules. And we're very lucky in the UK that we have this rule book. Um, and as long as you comply with all the rules in that rule book, and, or you can argue your case, um, then you can get it on the road. And I know it's very different for you guys in, in Norway. Um, and, and I feel for you, <laughs> frankly, because it's, you know, it's, it's brilliant to be able to, I mean, it's quite fun when we took the sofa to America last year, we, we drove uh, from LA well, to Vegas and then up to um, San Francisco and back. Uh, it was about 12,000 miles, um, sorry, 1,200 miles, um, and, uh, which is still a long way in the sofa, frankly. Um, and um, it was brilliant. The, the police just didn't know what to say because, of course, I mean, in, in America, you do get also to build all kinds of crazy hot rods. I don't know what state you're in. You can do some great, really mad stuff to the cars. Um, and I think it's just really fun being able to do that. And, and it's, it's, it's a shame that a lot of other countries don't adopt that because, in a way, it's like art on the road, art on, on wheels. And so art you can... And I think, again, like with my craft design technology course when I was at school, just the idea of having an idea, thinking about it, getting on with it, building it, and then going and testing it, you know, that immediacy is just really, really fun. And I guess I'm slightly impatient. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, uh, for like 15 years, because uh, you've uh, you started school uh, and were building. You've been building since you were like 12 or 13, 14 years, if I gather this yeah. correctly. And uh, in your late 20s, you get the the gig for Wheelie Dealers, and you spent almost 15 years being the what, if I can, the best way to put it is like the auto. Automotive uh, mechanic teacher for pretty much the whole world. Um, how did you end up in Wheelie Dealers in the first place? Yeah, well, it's it one of those things. It was quite random. I'd, I'd done um, because of the sofa. We had um, I'd, I'd been spotted. I guess well, it's one of those weird things. I think there was, there was BBC uh, execs were trying to make a show. Um, I, think, I think you guys had Scrappy Challenge um, in a way, but it was this kind of idea about making cars out of or making things or cars do stuff that they wouldn't normally do. And they were looking for someone to, to be able to do that. And as, as it happened, at the moment they were looking, I'd, we'd just done the speed record at um, Donington. We had been in the paper, we'd been in Custom Car Magazine, we'd been in all these different places. So I was the guy they needed to get hold of. And so they got hold of, we did the pilot, and it was really good fun. And then we ended up doing a series for that. So that was the series, that was one of my first TV series. And it was literally just because I used to mess around with cars. And of course, all those years of tinkering in the garage suddenly sort of paid off, and it was fantastic fun. And then, um, then some guys were sort of uh, actually just left the BBC, so I guess they must have known of me. Um, were had this idea for Wheeler Dealers, and it was actually called Grand Autos. Originally, it was this working title because they were going to be done for a thousand pounds a grand, um, and of course, they were grand in their way. Um, and um, so they were looking around, and they sort of found Mike, and um, they were then looking for someone else. And we just they just did a they came up. Well, I had to do an interview, and I didn't. Um, I almost didn't go because we were busy building crazy vehicles, the office and the, and, and the um, giant shopping trolley at the time. And it just happened I had to pick up a part literally 10 minutes from where they wanted me to go on the same day. So I was like, you know what, I'll just pop in just for a laugh. And so I had to talk about my welding mask. I had like a solar-powered welding mask, and, uh, and I had to explain some bits and pieces on the Land Rover. And then I just forgot about it, to be honest. And sort of a couple of weeks later, or months later, whatever, they phoned up and said, oh, can we come down and just do some more filming? I said, like, okay, fine. So we just walked around my car. Um, is this, is this, you know, it's just been bought. Uh, and then there was an instant chemistry. And so that, and then, so they went, oh, let's give it a go. And obviously the channel liked it. And it, but at the time, of course, it was a tiny channel, a tiny, sort of a tiny show on a tiny channel. Um, but it just kept getting better and better. The audience kept expanding. And I guess whatever we were doing, to work um, and it was really the first of its kind of that sort of show um, you know and it was there was a sort of a calm and a peace about it and we weren't shouting well and by this time the Americans had started doing all those sort of shouty shows um, and it, it sort of it, somehow it stood out on its own like that and I think a couple of years what, what 10 15 years ago whatever some time ago somebody worked out there's like 35 other car shows that were sort of based on our original sort of thread so it's quite a homage you know and it's got quite a lovely thing that we were able to start that um and it was i mean it was great fun it was i mean we had some i got to play with some really great cars and the best bit is you know you think oh, i've got to have one of those cars I'm like the lotus esprit for me or the the delorean you know sort of like the bond bug all these cars you know i really would love to get one of those and of course i had it for a couple of weeks in the workshop and then i knew straight away that i never wanted to see one again <laughs> you know for whatever reason or i managed to sort of scratch that itch and, you know, so, so many people end up with you know, massive car collections but never drive any of them but i actually kind of did the other way around i did all the work did the hard stuff got to drive it got to have fun with it and then you know sometimes it was a real shame to sell them and other times you kind of did you know, you're sort of glad that it's gone you've you've had to have a play you know you because I don't fit in a DeLorean, so I, I couldn't really own one 
for a lonely length of time because I would just cripple myself. And the same with the Lotus. I had to take, I only way I could drive it was by taking the driver's seat out, um, which isn't brilliant. So, you know, so there's all those, so you find all that stuff out. And then really the most interesting thing to me is exploring, if you think about all cars, all car manufacturers solve the same problems in different ways. And, and, and but it, it's all based on the same kind of automotive DNA. And, and that was the best bit, is just understanding how you know, Citroen will solve a problem completely differently to the way Porsche might or the way Volkswagen might. So it's, it's um, you know, that was really, really interesting. And I've learned an awful lot from that. So I know I then reapply that into whatever I'm tinkering within the workshop. And how many cars did you uh, work on uh, in your t- uh, during your time on Wheelie Dealers? Yeah, it's 135, which is enough, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 <laughs> it's a lot sure of cars. <laughs> it amazes me that they've made 135 cars when you think about it, but uh, different models. But, yeah, but the crazy thing was we, we barely even scratched the surface, you know I mean? Because I think of all the different models of all the ones we did do, but then there's mm. all the variations and all the other ones in the stable. So, I mean, that was the thing we always found really surprising, I think, is you know, every season we then, we then sort of already start, well, certainly what used to happen is we, when we're doing the test drives, there's a lot of waiting around at the side of the road, waiting for the traffic to clear or the cameraman to be ready for his next shot. And and then so there's not a lot of time to have a conversation about what you know what cars we haven't done and what we should do next. And we always try to make the next year you know even better than the previous one. Um, and it was amazing. There was never ever a shortage of vehicles that would be great to do. You know, and, it, and, and that's and because you'd done one or we we tried something a bit interesting. So when we did the Ampli car or we did the you know the 110 year old car, the Darak, the 110 Darak. Um, you know, for the London to Brighton run, all these sort of vehicles um, were, were were a little bit different, a little bit strange, and it meant, well, actually, now we've done that, we can do this, and so so you'd be surprised actually that there are. I think the world is full. <laughs> yeah, because either need work with all yeah, that are interesting for their own life. Yeah, because you started out with a, quite normal cars and quite normal budgets. I, I remember, I think it's the first season you you repair, uh, which is now a rather rare car, but a Ford. Um, I think they were called Capri in Norway, but a Capri with. Uh, yeah. And I think you 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 spray painted with a spray can to repair it and stuff. And <laughs> later yeah. in the seasons, you you do full on restorations. So the budgets must have increased quite quickly. Well, it did, well, it started out on how it for the first I can't remember how many years. Um, it was you know series one was a thousand pounds. We had to be able to buy and do up the car within a thousand pounds, hence the grand bit, I guess. And then went up to two thousand pounds for the second series, three for the third, and, and, and it sort of progressed that way. I mean, obviously, we had a tiny bit of budget extra, if you like, for the production, just to do some of the bits that you were never going to see on the show. Um, you know, because of course the cars, and that was one of the hardest bits actually about making the show at all was that in the first series, because we, we'd never done anything before, we just did the job. You know, we could change the starter motor or fix the hole in the exhaust or whatever, and that was fine. But then by the second season, it was like, well, we've done that before. We did that last year. So then we had to then try and sort of change the jobs. And so I then sort of, I guess, made a bit of a rod for our own back. And as much as I wanted every single job to be different to anyone we'd ever done before. So even if you're doing the brakes again, there's a dis- different aspect, a different way of approaching it, perhaps. Um, and so, and, and of course, by the time we got to 135, that was getting really, really hard to do. Um, and I think, uh, you know, there, there's, so a lot of what, what, what ended up happening is we buy a car with 20 things wrong with it just to be able to do the four that we wanted to film on camera. Um, and then of course the quality, I mean, that's the other thing. We went from standard definition television to a high definition television. So suddenly we had to do a much better job of cleaning them before we filmed the last shot <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> and then it went to 4K as well. We were the first show to go to 4K, um, and discovery. And that was, that was, 
terrifying. You can see stuff you can't even see with your own eye almost with 4K cameras. And so, and so we had to just do a really amazing job every time. Um, and then, of course, it was a huge team effort to make that happen. You know, and I mean, it, was, it was great fun with the crew. We had lots of jokes because you spend your whole time in this box, you know, sort of uh, in this sort of quite pressurized situation. So, of course, the humor gets a bit sideways, you know, gets a bit tricky sometimes. But it's, um, you know, it was always great fun and great jokes. It's just like, I suppose it's the same thing as a bit of being in the military or being in hospital or something, you know, where you have that kind of slightly warped kind of humor. And that was definitely us. But it was it was good fun. And then we got to go to some amazing places, um, you know, some incredible venues and stuff and, and got to drive some great cars. So, it's you know, it's, it's not bad as a sort of, you can't really call it a job. But, you know, it, was, you know, it, was, it was a good time, but obviously good things come to an end, I suppose. So that's, that was that. Yeah, because you, you, uh, you enjoyed your time with Willie Dillus. Very much so, yeah. It's, I mean, it's kind of, it's a really interesting, I mean, it's really hard work. Um, but I think the, the nice thing was that the, the feedback you get from the audience, you know, we've got some really, really dedicated fans. And I think it's, it's really very humbling, actually, when they come up and sort of, Talk, talk to you about their projects and then you know, we've inspired them. And it was actually, it's funny, I was in, um, in Norway well, about one Christmas and we were just literally, we were picking someone up. I'd got out of the car and this chap in a scooter pulled up and was asking for directions. And of course, I didn't, you know, he started in Norwegian and I had no idea what he was saying. And then he went, oh, it's you. And then he thought, oh, I started this project because of you and I think I'm going to get hit in a minute now. You know, but, it, but actually, you know, our show gave him the confidence to, to actually start a project for a start and then actually to carry on. And I think that's a really amazing thing. We never sort of really set out to do that. It was just, can we just restore a car and do whatever? Um, but I suppose as time's gone on, you know, we try to explain everything properly um, and, and and try and, and if we're doing something slightly dodgy, then we'd explain why and you know, why we're saving money or time or whatever for that reason. And, and, and it's amazing the number of people who say these little top tips have been really helpful to them. So it's, I mean, I'm very, very lucky that I got to do that. Yeah, I think that's true uh, for a lot of people in Norway, at least. I, I know it's true for me because I, I the um, the early seasons inspired me to uh, to work on my own cars, not because I wanted to, but because I was a student and broke. But um, yeah. your shows inspired me, in, in example, to to go and buy some some cheap uh, tools and fix the things I had to fix, and from there on the the um, and I managed to believe him <laughs> and that this was something I could do. My English is deteriorating rapidly while I'm talking now, so sorry about that. But um, no, it's better than my Norwegian still. <laughs> it's my wife's Norwegian. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I have to ask you, um, this, um, for the listeners who have uh, watched the shows of uh, the year, there's, uh, there's a guy always helping you out and... Many believe that that's just some random guy working on the production, but uh, he's actually a friend of yours. Yeah, Paul. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's funny. We'll be, we'll be built stuff, and I think we've, in the book I've actually included a couple of pictures from um, of us looking embarrassing, frankly, from you know, from I, I guess the nineties. Um, but it was um, I mean, we met. I met Paul years and years ago. I was doing a I had a T uh, three van, and I, I put I was putting a V eight Rover V eight into the back as you do, um, and I needed a distributor, and there, there was like an early version of the distributor with a, with a smaller, it was just smaller in design, so it didn't fit into the space, because I had very little room at all. I'd actually lowered it so I could push the whole engine and gearbox and stuff forward in the van without ruining the angles on the CV joints and stuff. So it was, always, it was quite technical, but quite difficult anyway. And I, and I went to this shop I used to go and get a bit trouble, and they said, oh, no, we've never had anything like that. But the guy around the corner wheel, I was like, all right, so I went to go and see him. 
and knocked on the door. But as you can see, there's a guy there with his big drag car. He had his sort of TR7 or TRV8 sort of drag car and this bright yellow, uh, sort of Ferrari yellow colour. And he rummaged around in a box and he had exactly what I was looking for. It was like, fantastic. And he went back, fitted it. It didn't work at all. And it's like, how dare you? So I went back and it's like, well, what the hell is this about? And then he said, look, come and give you a hand. And it turned out that for drag racing, he'd removed the, the mechanical advance by welding up the bob weights. So we had some spare bob weights. So, and then it literally, we started working on stuff and tinkering with things together. And it went from there. And then he worked with me for, for years with the comfy banana cars. And we built all kinds of crazy, like the big yellow, it's like a clamshell car we built called Robermo. Again, he built the engine on that, the Rover V8. So that was his, his thing. And then the engine still runs sweet. I've still got the car and it runs beautifully still to this day. I've, you know, no maintenance at all. It's amazing. So, yeah, so it's been great. And, it, and then when Wheeler Dealers started, it was sort of, he did, he worked with me on Panic Mechanic, which is the show before. So, and we, you know, we even broke in uh, one night to try and finish a car, you know, sort of, just sort of sweet talk the security a little bit and went back and pretended we had to go and pick up some bits and we just didn't leave um, and just get some extra work done. So, yeah, we, we've been through some mad times together and then We The Billions was just an extension of that. Um, and, of course, as more more cars were doing, the, the company, Discovery, wanted more and more episodes. We had to do, you know, work. It started off just six um, cars or episodes at a time, really. Um, once a year, and that was enough, and then you you, know, you could have a bit of a break and get on with something else, and then come back. And then, of course, as the show got more and more successful, they wanted more and more episodes. So we did twenty, uh, was the most I think we did in a year, um, and that was just crazy. And then and then Paul was joined by another guy called Phil, um, and so then they, both of them would be on camera every once in a while. And then and then they and then Paul's son joined uh, to help as uh, you know sort of like well, as Paul's assistant, but usually off camera. You know, so it's one of those things. It just it just the team effort got bigger and bigger. <laughs> Um, but you know, but Paul's he's he's actually doing he's working on some other car shows I think in the background at the moment, um, and you know we've been talking about doing some other bits together, sort of going forward. So he's uh, yeah, it, it should be interesting. So again, keep watching this space, see what happens. <laughs> we should get him back on camera for sure. Because uh, you, you were saying everything has to end, uh, and for a lot of your fans, your uh, your um, departure from Wheeler Dealers came as a shock. Um, are you happy about the decision to leave the show and and what you've been doing since? It was absolutely well, it was absolutely the right time, um, and I think you know I've got to do some amazing stuff since, um, which I couldn't have done. So I looked after my mother for, for six months, which I could never have done if we'd been away filming somewhere. Um, and you know we've got to do all those little things that, that I've been meaning to do for ages that, that sort of you just you just put off because you're working all the time. So so that's been great, and I think it's um, and again the electric thing. I, you know, I wasn't it took me six years to persuade the show to let us do electric conversion um, and then we finally did when we got to the states because they weren't so worried about it so so that you know, and, I, and i never would have been able to go as deep into that as i have done with the ice cream van and stuff so it's been you know it's one of those things i mean like normally if you were at a job for longer than about 10 years you're, you're expected to leave <laughs> so or move on or get promoted or something so so i thought you know so from that point of view it was the right time but also there are so many other things to do, so so that was really the thing. I'm sort of just getting on with that now, which is great. Yeah, because I have to ask: Are you are you on good terms with your co-presenter Mike Brewer still? Well, he's so busy. He's he's over in the states filming because, of course, he's carried on over there. Um, and you know, like when we were filming before, you know, we, we didn't really see that much of each other, to be honest. Other than when we we're actually on camera together. So so now, you know, he's just doing his thing over there. As, as busy as a busy thing so, so I think it's the, the nature of television is, is that you kind of waft in and out of these things and it's super intense while you're doing it and then you, know, you go off and sort of go and pursue other things so I guess that's that's, that's the way it's always going to be really mm. 
so you're doing the ice cream van project, uh, but are you and you're thinking about build, <laughs> building an electric Range Rover? But uh, what cars do you own today? You've got two Range Rovers and a battery electric ice cream van. What else? Well, exactly. Well, I have the two Range Rovers because it doubles the chances of one of them working. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I've also got the. Uh, so I bought I bought the Cadillac that we did on the show. Um, as you might remember, we had a 1916 Cadillac that we were going to go on repeating to Paris with, and then we had to buy a 1918 to, to use some of its bits for the show. Um, so I ended up um, sort of buying those off the show. So I've, I've got those now. Well, actually, we own them anyway, or half of them anyway. Complicated, but we 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 have those to do up and I've. Um, the 18, unfortunately, isn't working at the second because it needs a few little jobs to make the starter charger. It's the world's first electric starter sort of uh, in production. Um, and it's 100 years old and it's obviously stopped working. <laughs> so that's going to be fun to try and work out, you know, so how, how to get that to work, whether it's the magnets are sort of, you know, sort of worn out or something or, or windings melted. I'm not quite sure. But, you know, so there's a bit of tinkering to be done there. And then there fantastic cars i mean the 16 needs a lot of work to get it ready to be on the road but the 18 is, is pretty much there um so they're great fun and of course i've got a lot of the weird stuff so we have the sofa which is currently in the states we've got um you know like a bed car and a few other crazy things like that like an outspan orange um <laughs> driving orange so we've got those sort of things as well um but literally beyond that at the moment uh, we've got nothing else i the the we sold a couple of classics we had to sell before we, when we got dragged out to america um, just because you know it was safer than just leaving them somewhere, um, and um, it's one of the things I, I think I'm quite lucky that because I've played with so many work on so many cars. As I was saying earlier, you kind of you scratch that itch. So I don't really have any desire to have a massive car collection because I know how much work that is. <laughs> I think you know because you've got to keep it working. Like someone like Jay Leno, for example, he's got you know he's got this massive, massive warehouse full of amazing cars, and every single one of them. Um, it works on turns on the button. It's absolutely amazing. Um, but he has four full-time guys working for him, you know, to, to, to make that possible. And he goes and tinkers, you know, when he can, because he's always working as well. So I think the thing is, it is um, any, any car collection is, is a, you know, is, is a lot of work. Even if you don't do it yourself, you're going to have to pay someone else to do so, and you've got to store them, and you've got to look after them. So, so as a custodian of these things for the next generation. Um, I guess it's one of those things where I think I'm, I'm happy with tinkering with the stuff I've got right this second. Um, and I've got a couple of ideas for projects I'd like to make going forwards, but I guess we'll have to just wait to see what the YouTube <laughs> does and see what I know, see how much, how crazy I get to go. So is Jay Leno working on his own cars? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he, I mean, he, he knows he knows how, I mean, that's his fascination. You know, he knows how they all work. Um, you know, he tinkers with them all. I mean, he's, he's been an integral part of building them. Even, I mean, for years, he was trying to get hold of a, a steam-powered car that Kaiser made back in the day, and, and, and they wouldn't sell it to him and stuff. And so in the end, he built his own. So he let him and a team designed and built this thing, went and did a world record with it, I think. And then uh, and, then, and then he ended up getting the other one from Chrysler anyway because they were in a bit of financial trouble. So he's now got two steam cars. But he's actually got three because he's actually got another one, um, which... Uh, it was Howard Hughes um, sort of commissioned, and it's just the most amazing bit of engineering. Um, and, and it still works to this day. Yeah, turn it on, even though it's steam, it's ready in so many of those few minutes. It's an incredible thing. Yeah, because he's got one of those crazy um, jet fire engine, uh, I think it's a Chrysler from the 50s. Yes, that's it. Well, that, well, that was it. And so he, he um, so that was yeah, the gas turbine uh, thing as well. So yeah, he's got. So he's. I mean, that's the thing. He, he's just fascinated with that. So that's his toy box. So you know, like he works 
you know, does his stand-up and does his other bits and leaves just to pay for the car collection. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what I'm saying. You know, like if you've got if you've got a lot of cars, it's going to cost you one way or the other. I think the um, and it's you know, and there's going to be a couple. I think if, if you can do fun stuff with them, so, I mean, I, I still have a hankering for a veteran car, so a car that's older than 1904, um, and and because then we get to do the London to Brighton one, and that's an amazing. You know, every year, even if it's peeing down with rain, it doesn't matter. It's fantastic fun, and I'd recommend even if you know, if you ever find yourself in in the UK, the first it's always the first Sunday of, of November. Um, and I think even this year they're still hoping to try and pull it off. Um, and um, you know, you just have all these hundred year old cars, with all these people dressed in tweed and stuff, and there's steam and smoke and whatever. It's just the most amazing thing. It feels like Edwardian Britain, and so for that reason, I feel I'm allowed to have one of those cars one day perhaps and, and you know there's like my um it'd be nice to maybe track down my uncle's Bentley perhaps you know maybe one day in the future but you know i think you know it'd be crazy having 365 cars you could buy, drive a new one every day you know that would be nuts so i think it's nice to appreciate what you've got but you know keep it just keep it simple <laughs> mm. but you were always filming with jay leno and the sofa uh, right mm-hmm. yeah um yeah. what yeah. did what did jay leno think about your sofa by the way No, I think well, he was very kind. I think it's um, about the, there's an episode just gone out last week actually in America with that on CNBC. But it's um, it's uh, yeah, it was good fun actually. It was, it, was a, it was a nice day out if you like, sort of chatting. And he, and he got he took to driving it really easily as well. I mean, I guess again because he's used to driving so many different things, I guess that that, that really helps. Um, but it is also automatic. But I mean, I think he quite enjoyed it. And I think the I mean, you are very exposed. Um, you know, so driving through the desert, obviously, if there's a sandstorm, you're going to get it. Um, but equally, when you're in, in going, going down the strip at Las Vegas, um, you know, it's, it's it's a mad place at the best of times with lots of people at, at different times having all kinds of fun. Uh, so, you know, so there's a lot of funny comments and stuff. But obviously, because he used to doing stand up, he, he had a line for everybody, so that was great. So I think I think he had a good time. And I think he, but he, he did suggest that I should try design or building a, a normal car just to see if I can. <laughs> We have to. Uh, we're starting to um, to come to the end of the interview, but I have to ask you if you were not necessarily young, but you wanted to start out uh, your new hobby of building or repairing cars. Um, what your What's your best tips to uh, to get started with working on on cars or other stuff you want to build? How do you get going? How yeah, do you get sure. the confidence? Well, I- I think the thing is, I think if, say it's a car. I mean, because it could be anything. But if it's a car, I would, I would first of all find a car that you like the most passionate you can be about. I mean, because obviously, it doesn't have to be a car you know, that you, you, you know, if it's something you want to afford. Obviously, you need to make sure that you don't max yourself out when you buy it. But also, it's got to be something that you know, even in the really hard times, you're still going to pull through. Yeah, because, you know, because obviously, working on stuff like that can be frustrating. You're going to have not high times as much as low times, and obviously putting on the shiny new wheels and, and, and whatever and, and polishing the glass. You know, that's the easy bit. It's all the really tough stuff where there can be some enjoyment. But obviously sometimes, you know, you just have to get through it. So so I think you need to make sure that it's something you're really definitely passionate about rather than, you know, you quite like it. But also I would join a club if you can find, you know, even if, you know, if you can find a club that's specific to that car, that's even better because there'll be loads of advice and people have already been through what you've been through. Um, but also it's really about... Um, 
you know, learning those top tips and also just having the, the, the fraternity, if you like, of a lot of like-minded people. Um, and, and then you can go on trips together and stuff, or you can even go in someone else's vehicle that's finished, so you get to you know, inspire yourself. I mean, that's why we used to do it on the show. It's just, it's just like, this is what you could have. You know, so let's get on with it and, and, and whatever. So but I think also when you, it's quite daunting. If you, if you, I mean, if, you, if you're just starting, I think just a car that's pretty much there, you know, pretty much up together would be a place to go because there's always going to be stuff that needs tinkering. I think you, you don't want to go and buy, a, you know, like a well, like we did with the 1916 Cadillac. You don't want to buy just a load of rust, <laughs> basically. You know, a couple of boxes of bits, you know, because that is tough. I mean, that's really daunting. And, you, you know, but if you get a project that you feel is insurmountable, you just have to break it down into smaller and smaller and smaller jobs. And then, and then that way, if it's literally just to undo a bolt and then repair it and sort of clean it up and put it back on again, um, then, then suddenly that's quite manageable. And once you've done that one thing, then it's easy to do the next thing. So I think that's always the way. And also, don't be, don't be scared to sort of have a go. But at the same time, make sure you've prepared, make sure you've read about it, make sure you understand the implications of what you're about to do and the safety issues and stuff like that. Like if you're going to undo some springs, make sure that you're doing it properly. But also, get a friend to help you because it's, that's part of the fun because obviously then you can, you, know, you can have some banter while you're going on it. But also, you've got someone like Paul to give you a hand because that's, that is also invaluable. And then it comes to things like tools. Um, you don't need to go and rush out, although it's really tempting, you know, it, it, <laughs> to go down and sort of go down to, you know, um, Biltima or whatever and go and buy a massive set of tools or whatever. You don't need to do that. I think, you know, you, you just buy the essential. But what I, how I learned with the vehicle, my first car, my, my, my parents had played with minis, so they had imperial tools. So I learned very quickly that using the wrong tool for the job is very stupid and it can hurt and it ends up with lots of blood everywhere. But, um, but, you know, literally just buy the tools you need as and when you need them. Um, and you know, I've, I still have one of my first tools, which is this special 13 mil spanner with a funny cranked end, so I can actually get to a carburetor on a on a Volkswagen engine. Because um, at the back nut, the one that's next to the fire, the, the sort of the fire or the tin, the, the cooling tin, is um, the fan shroud is, is, is actually very difficult to get at. So you need this special spanner. Um, but then also the other thing is, I wouldn't ever be scared. I remember it was early on, but I think you'd be confident enough that if you must modify a tool to get a job done. But it's okay. Maybe go and buy a cheaper one. There's plenty of really cheap tools out there that aren't actually so bad in quality. You know, you don't have to go and buy your Snap-on or your Mac tools straight away. And, and But equally, things like a really, really lovely ratchet, if it's a bit more expensive than you're expecting, you know, it's, it's kind of worth its weight in gold because you'll be using it all the time. Um, whereas, you know, your, the, the set of slightly shorter spanners that go with the ones that are longer and even shorter, you know, you might not need them, but there'll be that time when you must have them just to get the job done. So I would not buy that stuff until you really, really need it. Um, so, do you know what I mean? So I think, I think it's one of those things you just ease yourself in, um, but really get people around you because that's where it's most fun. And then, you, you know, you can go off on trips, and you can go to car shows and stuff, but it's, it's what will pull you through the difficult times, I think, really. So follow the progression of the uh, the wheelie dealers seasons. Uh, yeah, what you're saying. <laughs> exactly. And you don't you think yeah you don't need a ramp and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, you can if you can find somewhere where you can borrow one every once in a while, that's helpful. And you know you should use it, you know sort of actual stands or wheel or actual stands or wheel stands or whatever when they're using trolley jacks and all that kind of stuff. So, but also. You know, second-hand tools are fine too, and you can get some amazing bargains where somebody else is, you know, now finished with that, or you know, sort of a company's going bust or whatever. You'll find stuff out there. So there's always, you know, there's always ways of finding it, and that's quite fun. Going to auto jumbles and then buying those odd tools and bits and pieces while you're getting other spares. So I think, I think that's the thing. Make all of it a fun. Make all of it an adventure. Um, I mean, we're very lucky over here because we have a Bewley. They have a 
to massive, massive auto jumbles twice a year. Um, and so you get to spend literally three days traipsing around fields looking at tables for the rusty old parts, and you'll suddenly find that one bit that you need for your car, and also a lot of stuff you really didn't need, but you'll buy anyway. <laughs> so, so that's where the fun is. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Uh, for our listeners who want to get your book, the easiest way is probably going into uh, greasejunkie.com and ordering it there, and you have a lot of other stuff like t-shirts and gloves and stuff like that, and uh, to follow your channel on YouTube for further stuff, is that correct? That's absolutely absolutely, yes, it's youtube.com slash edchina, two Ds of course, and um, in fact you can actually on the edchina.com website there's even a little button that you can click to subscribe straight away, and as I say, I, I do promise we will have some more YouTube videos sometime in the near future, so, so, so it's almost worth waiting for, let's say that. <laughs> Again, thank you so much for your time and uh, have a lovely summer. Ja, det det var det. Då har vi uh, lärt detta och hint om vår uh, brittiska favoritmekaniker. Vi kommer till att ge veck ett signerat exemplar av boken till Ed China så följ med på vår Facebookgrupp Finansavisen Motor får möjligheten till att vinna denna boken. Den har jag läst. Det gick väl kanske igenom igen i uh, intervju, men den är er absolut värt att läsa. Den ger ett fascinerande inblick också i mannens liv utanom uh, Wheeler Dealer programmet. Vi uh, skal som sagt ha flere gäster når sommeren er over så vi ønsker jo selvfølgelig tips om gode stemmer som kan komme in her og prata med oss vi skal også være på skal man si, kan man si at man er på luften Karolina men vi er i hvert fall på luften i hele sommer vi har episoder gjennom sommeren og, og håper jo at dere vil følge oss da Och har du tips till episoder, temar, eh, biler, personer, historier där du önskar att vi ska ta upp så send oss en mail på mileettermil@finansavisen.no. Och med det så önskar jag dig en ypperlig sommar. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 
Mil etter mil, en podcast om bil er en podcast fra Finansavisen. Programledere er Håkon Sæbe og David Kordal Andersen. Producent er Lars Brenden Skram og ansvarlig redaktør er Trygve Hegnar.